Hi there, I'm James Gignon, one of the hosts for Iconoclast. On episode 4 of Uprooted, I'm joined by Dr. Kirsty Robertson, a professor here at Western who currently runs the undergraduate museum and curatorial studies major in the Department of Visual Arts. Dr. Robertson's current projects include her new book, Tear Gas Epiphanies, Protest, Museums, Culture, her Shirk-funded project, Pop-Ups, Alternatives, Artist Museums, and Micro-Museums, Exploring the Edges of Museology, and The Synthetic Collective. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Now, I was reading about The Synthetic Collective, and I was very interested about that. Um, you're a founding member of it. It's a mix of scientists, artists, and cultural researchers working on plastics pollutions in the Great Lakes. Could you tell us a little more about that and the relationship between art and science? Sure. So the Synthetic Collective, as you noted, is a group of artists and scientists. And we came together because we wanted to think about how coming together could be more than the various parts of what we were doing. So what could the arts do for science and what could the sciences do for art? And as it happened, at the time we came together, most of us were based at Western University. And we were interested in plastics pollution in the Great Lakes. So Patricia Corcoran is the earth scientist in our group. And she had been studying microplastic pollution in the Great Lakes specifically, as well as in other bodies of water. And as artists, several of the artists in the group had been working with plastics and were interested in the toxicity of plastics, the way that plastics may last into generations to come. And then I'm a curator and a writer, so I sort of am in some ways the bridge between the arts and the sciences, thinking about how to put a public face on things. So we've done a number of projects together. Right now we're working on a big exhibition that's going to open at University of Toronto in fall 2020, and that's based around a big sampling project where we sampled for microplastics at the strand lines of each of the Great Lakes. So we're going to release a scientific paper about it. We're going to have this exhibition, and then we'll do some more sort of cultural writing. And each part of the project will feed into the other parts. Who are you hoping to reach with this project? That's a really good question, because ideally, we would like to reach everyone. But more practically, an exhibition will reach people who are interested in the arts and are maybe part of the arts world in Toronto. It will reach students who go to the exhibition. The scientific article will reach a completely different audience. It has, in some ways, a more media-friendly face, so probably a lot of our results will be picked up through media outlets through the scientific route and then the in-between part like who knows so we're hoping that maybe some policy changes could come out of this research we're doing about the amount of microplastics pollution that is in the Great Lakes right now so we're hoping that having these different kinds of outcomes will reach more people ultimately. That's really interesting but in terms of activism, because I know you've done a lot of research in activism and activist movements. Based on your experience, 
what makes art so important for activism, whether it be political, environmental, or any sorts? Yeah, uh, art can act as a catalyst for a lot of things. So art can be the sort of visual reference for people who may not want to read like a longer article or something like that. So, so it can be really quick. It can have an impact in an immediate manner. But I think that art and activism, there are so many ways that they can come together. So it can be like the curatorial impetus to bring certain works of art together that can have activist impact. Or it could be something like people making really exciting and funny and serious signs on cardboard boxes that they take to events and interventions and protests. Like that's art too, in a way. So I think it's just that the visual impact provides a certain language that can have a really interesting and strong effect. So we're interested in that. Uh, we're also interested in or I personally am interested in the kind of push and pull between museums as places where you go to learn things and museums as places that don't aren't always open to accepting new or different or radical kinds of knowledge. So I'm interested in that as well. That actually reminds me, you mentioned in your bio that you want to reimagine the space of the museum and the micro-museum. Do you want to expand on what you mean by that? So when it comes to climate change and climate emergency, museums have to respond on multiple levels. So on the one hand, museums have huge environmental footprints. And a lot of them are starting to think about how they can use greener kinds of technology or like different ways of certifying their buildings, thinking about inputs and outputs into the building. So museums do think about these things. Also, a number of museums have reconfigured their permanent exhibitions around issues of the Anthropocene or climate change or climate emergency because they see themselves as educational institutions, like places where people go to learn, and I think they're perceived as that as well. I'm also interested in uh, kind of curation that takes place almost entirely outside of museums. And one of the ways is through these little micro museums or micro institutions. So these could be little pop-ups and they sort of mirror what a museum looks like, but they don't have all the long-term baggage of museums or the huge infrastructure or, you know, boards of directors. So they have much more flexibility and often they can make critical statements in ways that use the educational purpose of the museum without necessarily having to be the museum itself. So a really good example of this is um, a group called Not an Alternative, and they have a project called the Natural History Museum, which is a portable kind of itinerant museum. So it looks like a glass display with a diorama inside of it. But the dioramas will have things like, can we imagine a world without oil or a world beyond oil? Can we imagine a world 
where humans have, you know, adapted and thought about climate change in such a way that they have responded to it and built a new world. So because it's such a like flexible structure, it's able to reach the public in the way that a museum or public institution might, but it's also able to take advantage of not having to be in a building. So it can move around, it can be a part of different things. So that is probably one of my favorite projects that incorporates all of the things that I'm interested in, but it also explodes the space of the museum itself. A lot of your work has to do with museums and the idea of the archive, specifically your recent work, Museum for Future Fossils. What importance does this pose in the recent climate strikes? Museum for Future Fossils was an exercise in radical pedagogy. So the idea was to create an instance where we would bring together a number of graduate students from across North America with experts in many fields, the sciences, the arts, curators, people who just knew about the flora and fauna of the region and so on. And it took place in London, Ontario, Toronto, and New York City. So the idea was What would happen if you bring together a number of people who are interested in climate emergency but have very different disciplinary backgrounds? So people who are working towards a common goal from very different angles. And I think the project was enormously impactful in bringing together like connections that you might not think of. So the way that we did a sampling for microplastics at Lake Huron But then later, we were noticing the plastics in the classroom in London, Ontario. Uh, We saw the kind of oil and chemical infrastructure outside Sarnia. And then we saw the oil trains in New York City. So we were sort of seeing how things fit together. So to make a kind of direct link to climate strikes, I almost feel like the purpose of them is to do something like that, to bring together young people from many different backgrounds with many different approaches to climate emergency who are trying to like imagine a better future, like to imagine a more or an impactful way to take back the world that really has been badly impacted by the generations coming before. So I feel like as part of that older generation, that one of my purposes has to be to offer guidance, but also to listen to younger people, whether they are high schoolers on climate strike or the graduate students in this class, in thinking through what configurations of the future might look like and how we can bring those into being. So Museum for Future Fossils, like it was a class and it had different outcomes like exhibitions, a website and things like that. But I'm hoping that the impact of having all of those people together will have ripples for kind of years to come. So it's impact is not in the moment it carries on and hopefully the climate strikes will have the same kind of longitudinal impact like something that is not just in the moment of the strikes themselves even in the name future fossils it kind of has that like hope but also decay kind of aspect of it yeah we really wanted to think about deep time both in terms of like 
the long histories that have gone into making things like fossil fuels and then the equally long trajectories into the future of the decay or non-decay of some of these synthetic objects. So we were thinking of time as like a vast expanse. And um, we did a lot of reading on indigenous knowledges about time and about thinking about water and rocks and land as a part of the world that we inhabit and have to take into consideration in all of our actions. So that was an important way of thinking through that capitalism, the world we live in, these are just like a a blink of the eye in the long history of time. And the title Museum for Future Fossils was a partially playful, partially really serious way of trying to get at that. Wow, and you definitely did a great job of capturing that. But moreover, what fascinated you about textiles, uh, specifically your work with petrotextiles? Could you briefly explain for our listeners what a petrotextile is? Yes. So it's a really long story, but the short version is that my mom is a really talented like quilter, sewer, knitter, all of that. And uh, so she taught me some skills. And in doing that, I started to think about the labor that was going into the making of my own clothing. And that was more than a decade ago. But it was sort of my introduction to thinking about textiles. And a lot of people who make their own textile work are very interested in the difference between natural and synthetic fibers. So natural fibers are things like cotton, wool, even leather, uh, versus things like polyester, nylon, and so on. And as I started researching this in more detail, the history of synthetic fibers started to fascinate me because it is such a short history, sort of like 70 years really, Mm -hmm. that we have used these in larger and larger amounts, but the impact that they have had on the world has been kind of extraordinary. So textiles are things like a pair of socks, but they're also things like a giant stadium roof or parts of a space shuttle. Uh, So synthetic textiles are a huge thing that goes from like the nano level up to the almost the largest thing you can imagine. And in thinking about that, I became interested in the connection between textiles and then other huge economic entities, and in this case, oil. Synthetic textiles are made from a petroleum byproduct, and there is a very tight link between synthetic textiles and oil. There's also a very tight link between the oil industry and the making of synthetic textiles. So I was participating in this project at the time called Petrocultures, which was saying about the role of oil in contemporary culture and the way that it's omnipresent but often invisible and petrotextiles as a term came out of that project but I think it's a useful way for capturing how some of the things that we find the most useful in our lives like things like spandex or stretch denim have at their base this petroculture that is both invisible and 
ubiquitous. So that's where that project came from. And did you come up with the name Petrotextile? I did, yes. That's <laughs> my neologism. <laughs> I can't say it's like caught on widely, but I think it is like pretty clear in terms of what it's describing. Yeah. For sure. Now, I want to slowly move back into activism. And what are some ways that people can become active in activism? Uh, I know a lot of people feel lost about where to start, and it just leads to this defeatist apathy. How can this be prevented? Well, um, I don't know if my sitting here can prevent apathy in general, but I really do feel strongly that small gestures and large gestures are needed. So... For me, when I teach about synthetic textiles, for example, I really just do want people to make different choices in the kinds of textiles that they purchase, the way they wear them, how they discard them, and how they wash them. So anything from washing your clothing slightly less frequently to completely disrupting the system in which we live to make it a more equitable and ecologically generous model. Like, I don't think individuals can do things alone. But that doesn't mean that small gestures don't matter. Apathy, to me, is part of the same thing that makes us only think as individuals rather than as what can we do together to make this a better world for everyone. I don't think things look great right now. I mean, I think it does look, it's not surprising that people are feeling a bit defeated, but I also think the wide time frame that we were looking at in Museum for Future Fossils was a part of that. Like this is a blink of an eye if we can maybe get out of this situation (laughs) in a way that is conducive to life flourishing as we continue, I think that's the best way. So it's a small and a large problem. People can intervene at any level. And activism can mean something as small as walking to work or riding a bike or as big as completely changing the fundamental structures of the world that humans have created. So overall, are you hopeful or are you kind of just doing the best you can? (laughs) I am hopeful that life on Earth will continue to flourish. I do not think the structures we have created can continue in the way we have created them. But I don't think that it is the end times for the world. (laughs) So on the whole, hopeful. Well, thank goodness for that. But kind of shifting gears a bit, going into something a little lighter. um, (laughs) How did you come into studying all of this? Uh, Did you approach this topic um, within your academic career? Or were there other areas of your life that sort of piqued this interest and this unique intersection of topics? Yeah, I grew up in Vancouver at a time where um, anti-logging protests were really sort of catching the public eye. And I think that had a huge impact on me because I grew up outside of Vancouver itself in an area that kind of bordered a, a natural forest. So I think 
honestly, everything came for me from wanting to protect the environment in which I grew up in. And that has been a thread through almost everything I have done is trying to think about what can be the positive outcomes of the kind of work that I do. Uh, I do think of myself as a kind of activist academic, and I do think there is room within the academy for that kind of work. There are people who don't think that. They think that the academy is too much a part of the systems it's trying to criticize or take apart for it to have any impact. And over time, um, I think the thread through all of my work is this kind of activist impulse to think about what kinds of impacts is your work having? Who are you writing for? What kinds of audiences do you hope to um, reach with the kind of work you do? And I think my work has become more and more public. So it started out in you know a dissertation form and then would take the form of academic articles. And now it's it's more about like exhibitions and curating and thinking about how to have these classes with students and people who aren't students and aren't associated with the university at all. So those are the, yeah, those are the strands of my work. Academia can be really great <laughs> if you can make it a part of the things you care about. So really you think it's necessary to take those steps within academia despite the criticism, at least in your situation? It definitely is for me. Uh, if my work does not have an impact beyond my narrow discipline, I'm quickly uninterested in doing it. So those, if I have even had any projects like that, they have not culminated in anything. <laughs> <laughs> the ones that have really sort of grown and given me sustenance are the ones that, yeah, have a kind of much heavier impact or much move beyond my discipline, move beyond my training as a scholar and into other areas. And finally, where can our listeners find and follow you and your work? Um, I have a website. It is... My name, KirstyMariRobertson.com. Uh, you can also just find it on the Western Visual Arts website. Uh, MuseumForFutureFossils.com is a website, and SyntheticCollective.org is also a website. Um, I also have a project coming up this summer that I'm co-curating at Museum London with Sarah E.K. Smith, who is a professor at Carleton. And it's called, If the Solution is Not Beautiful, I Know It is Wrong. And it looks at a 1968 visit that was made by the futurologist Buckminster Fuller to London, Ontario. And he talks about, he gave a talk here, and in it he talked about how London was kind of this interesting place between Detroit and Toronto that had this ecological setting that was of great interest to him. So we are working with artists to think about the impact of Fuller's work in the 60s, but also about all of the things that he overlooked. So he didn't pay any attention at all to uh, Indigenous ownership of land, for example. He didn't really think about how um, 
Black Americans and Canadians might experience the past differently from how he imagined it. So we're working with artists who might have very different concept of the future or of like ecological justice than Buckminster Fuller did, but their work I think will be of interest to anyone who's in London or who might want to see that exhibition. It opens May 16th at Museum London. You heard it here, guys. That's May 16th, 2020. Go check it out at Museum London. This has been episode four of Iconoclast, the companion podcast to Iconoclast Collective. Thank you so much, Dr. Robertson, for coming in and sharing with us and giving your time. And thank you, our listeners, for sending in your work. Our submissions are now closed, but stay tuned for the uprooted release and launch party. This podcast is produced by Iconoclast Collective, hosted and edited by myself, James Gagnon, and special thanks to Radio Western for their continued support. This has been James Gagnon, and on behalf of the Icon team, thank you so much for listening.